way to find Zechariah in your Bibles is um, to go to Matthew, the book of the New Testament, and then go backwards because it's the second to last book in the Old Testament. So if you can find your way to the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you just go back. It's going to be Malachi, Zechariah, and you're there. And I think it will be useful for you to have the Bible in front of you. So whether it's on an app on your phone or a, a Bible next to somebody, I, I would really encourage you to get the Bible open in front of you. And let me pray as we get started. God, this morning, we're grateful that you call us into new life. We think about the imagery, even Lord, of, of baptism, which we'll get to participate in this morning. And we think about being a people who are called out of death and into life, who are buried with you in death, buried with you in baptism, raised to you, raised in you to newness of life. And we think about the calling that you've given us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Lord, and, and yet there's a part of us that struggles, that, that still wrestles with sin, that has a hard time imagining a life that uh, can possibly be victorious in these ways, Lord, um, because we're, we're sinful and we struggle and we wrestle. And so in the midst of our sin, I pray that you would help us by, by showing us your mercy this morning, making your mercies known to us that, that our desires might be changed. And so, Lord, would you do that as we open the word? Would your spirit be at work here in Jesus' name? Amen. All right, so um, Zechariah chapter 1. This is, okay, this is a really, really useful book for us to be in together. And I think sometimes it's one for reasons that we'll talk about a little bit. We, we hold off. All right, so I want us to be excited to be in Zechariah together. I don't want it to be like, why are we in these books that have all these visions that are so complicated? So let's get excited. But um, in order to, for us to do that, I want us to see like the, the degree to which books like Zechariah not just have such significance in the New Testament text. So we talked about it last week, but Zechariah is the most quoted prophet in the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, more than Isaiah, more than Ezekiel, more than you know any of the major prophets. Jeremiah, right? We have Zechariah, this minor prophet who's who has a major significance in the New Testament text. So Gospel counts Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, always going back to Zechariah. There's a lot of significance here for us. So I think there's a sense in which we don't always know that. We're not aware of that. But we're also unaware of the degree to which books like Zechariah have shaped Western storytelling, Western um, images in our storytelling. So you all know... Um, my fondness for J.R.R. Tolkien. And part of that appreciation is the ease with which he embeds so much of the scriptures in his like novels and his storytelling. So I'll give you an example. Early on in The Lord of the Rings, okay, we're introduced to this character known as Strider. This is Ranger from the North, right? Ranges about people like appear to be largely unaware of what exactly he does as he ranges. He's kind of seen as a vagrant someone who is a troublemaker, right? But then as the story unfolds, we come to learn more and more of his significance, that he's actually heir to a throne. And not only is he heir to a throne, but he's a, he's a coming king who's returning, a king from the West, called to return to his people to lead. He, he's the lead rider, and actually I think the last one, nerds can call me out on this later, uh, but, but maybe like um, fellow nerds, fellow nerds. I think he's the last of the Dunedain, right? So this is the... this. Um, group of horsemen who ranged around Middle-earth to protect them from the evil encroaching all around them, even when people were unaware that this was happening, right? Okay, so I think, let me, let me give you an example 
of how that plays out in the in, in the Christian life, how that story plays out in the Christian life. But then let me show you where that imagery comes from. So I think in many ways we have seen small d dunadine. It's a nerdy introduction. Um, <laughs> within Christian history, who've been used by God in this way. So in, in his book, Recovering Evangelicalism, Alan Thornbury shares his story. And it's a story that, these kinds of stories are stories that I'm interested in reading about and telling, you know, and like retelling in conversation and from the pulpit because they're helpful, I think. So Alan Thornbury, really gifted guy, uh, and goes to Oxford University to study theology, okay? And one of his professors for his New Testament survey course that was going to give a survey of like all the New Testament writings and study that, study um, how they work together, gave him as the primary textbook, um, a book by a guy by the name of Marcus J. Borg. If you're unfamiliar with Borg's work, like he's kind of old school, it's not, he used to be probably the standard textbook that was used for an undergraduate setting, especially in, in secular universities regarding like New Testament texts. Not, not really anymore. Now even like the secular universities of moved beyond Borg because his work has kind of been undone a little bit. But, okay, so back then, very very popular, very common for him to have his work there uh, in the hands of students. If you're unfamiliar with his work, I'll just say he just he denies the historicity of the gospel accounts. But not just that he, a lot of people deny the historicity. He's comfortable saying that Jesus actually did say a lot of the things that he said. Jesus actually did teach a lot of the things that he taught probably. Like he says, Jesus is a historical figure. The gospel accounts largely get a lot of what Jesus says. I mean, in a, in a lot of places, they, they get it right. But they tend to be the things that Borg himself personally agrees with. So he, in other words, he doesn't base his decision on whether or not Jesus did or said something or didn't do or say something on some kind of like manuscript evidence. Like a lot of his critics have said, like, has there been some kind of manuscript unve- unveiled in the Jude- discovered in the Judean wilderness that we're unaware of that would lead to these conclusions, right? It's not manuscript evidence. It's not historical method. Actually embedded in a lot of Borg's work is what I think is common today, right? It's a deconstruction of Jesus. Uh, you know, looking into the text, seeing parts that we're just not comfortable with or sound foreign to our culture, our cultural impulses, you know. And so it's this deconstruction of Jesus and then a reconstruction of Jesus that when Jesus is kind of put back together again, wouldn't you know he looks an awful lot like Marcus Borg and, you know, in the uh, 1970s liberal white scholar. And, and, and I think the same is similar today. We tend to deconstruct Jesus, the things that go against our our cultural impulses and the things that we're not comfortable with. But when we reconstruct him, we find a Jesus who looks a lot like me, who talks a lot like me. We talked about it before. So Borg, you know, um, Thornbury's reading Borg's book and he finds himself disappointed and disillusioned regarding Jesus because he's grown up with a deep belief in, in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that the, that the gospel accounts are true, um, that, that they're historically reliable, all those things. And yet, you know, he's reading Borg, and Borg's like, he speaks with authority. And it seems like, wow, so this is actually true? Like, I hadn't heard this before. And so he begins to, we talked about Israel last week being disillusioned, disappointed, um, because they start to think, are the promises of God really true? That's kind of what's happening in Thornbury's heart. He's like, is God's word really God's word? Are his promises really his promises? He's disillusioned. So he, while he's at Oxford, Another professor points him toward points him in the direction of a book called God, Revelation, and Authority 
by a scholar named Carl F.H. Henry, uh, who's a very well-known scholar in evangelicalism. And Henry's arguments, you know, like he doesn't directly seek to rebut anything Borg's written. But Henry's arguments from philosophy, historical method, biblical studies, you know, are just uh, really powerful to Thornbury. He reads this. He sees how easily dismantled Borg's book really was whenever those claims are addressed, which is why even the academy has kind of distanced themselves from Borg. But he ends up saying, and so this is Thornbury quoting himself from his 20s. Thornbury says, if this man, who obviously has such a titanic intellect, could believe in inerrancy, could believe that the Bible is inerrant, without error in the original writings, then I can too. It was a turning point for him that the Christian, in the midst of his disappointment and disillusionment, that God's promises are true, that the Christian faith is a reasonable faith, okay? So he has this turning point. And so he writes this tribute to Henry, okay? He says, over the years, evangelicals counted on their dean of theologians, Carl F.H. Henry, to help them navigate thorny issues that arose in the academy, but eventually found their way into the preaching and teaching of church leaders. So, Oftentimes, an issue rises in the academy, and we don't know about it, but then our pastors and churches can be influenced by this over and above the scriptures. So there's a turn, right? So so he says they relied on men like Carl F.H. Henry. He said, in essence, we could then afford to live like contented hobbits in the Shire, often blissfully ignorant of the encroachments of Mordor into the surrounding territory, because there were Dunedine like Henry, J.I. Packer, Conser, and company who ranged about protecting the evangelical borders. These were men who were convictional without being pugilistic. That is, they weren't trying to start fights with people or, or um, they weren't trying to uh, call people names, you know. He says, they responded in a theologically astute way without devolving into mere punditry. And that's really rare today because a lot of times my fear is that in response to things that aren't true, uh, in an attempt to kind of rebut that, Christians become pundits instead of careful theologians. Like, we just kind of repeat rhetoric, and we don't really base it in truth in a kind and loving way, right? So, and yet, these men, that's what they did. They were able to demonstrate the teaching of Scripture. They were able to demonstrate um, truth without devolving into punditry. Okay, so the point I want to make, there's a lot there, but the point I want to make as we come to the text is that God has at times raised up those who would vigorously defend the truth of the gospel, much to the benefit of the people of God, in order to protect the church from the kinds of disappointment that we often face in the world, the kind of disillusionment that we can face in the world when we start to think, man, maybe the Bible isn't true on this point, or maybe I've been wrong, we've been wrong about this all along. Maybe Jesus didn't actually teach some of these things. And yet, um, so, so that's true. Like, God's raised up people in that way. And yet, um, this image of the ultimate protector of mankind, you know, um, in an ultimate kind of way. It comes to us not from a follower of Christ, but in Christ Jesus himself. And we see the image that actually inspired Tolkien's creativity of this Dunedain here in our passage this morning. So in Zechariah chapter 1, 7 through 17, Tolkien read Zechariah. Then he wrote his, I mean, like, he, he, was, he was steeped in the Bible, and then he wrote his book. So this is helpful for us to see, like, where some of this imagery comes from. Because here we have the first of, I said last week, after the introduction, Zechariah now moves into eight visions. If you missed last week, I would go back and listen. Uh, GLC Podcast has it up. And, and I'm podcasting this one, too, if you want to go back and listen, or people aren't here. But, okay, so I said last week, after the introduction, there, there are now eight visions that are going to come after that. 
And these, so there was this initial call for God's people to repent, to turn from sin and to follow God, right? And now these visions function to help people understand what their repentance actually involves. Like repenting isn't just lip service. There's an action orientedness to it. Like we, we actually have to follow Jesus. So there's five ways in which um, they're called to follow God. Return from exile, rebuild the city, rebuild the temple, sing and rejoice, and then obey his laws and commandments, right? So we see that in these visions moving forward, that these are kind of the big picture items that they're supposed to, that Israel's supposed to obey God in. And it seems like a pretty tall order, especially when we realize that Israel's never been able to hold up their end of the bargain, right? There's always a sense in which God's called them to some, some end of this, and they've never been able to do that. They've always been failing to obey God, failing to turn to him. And that's precisely, I mean, it's part of the reason why I think there's disillusionment and disappointment in Israel in this time. But I think that's also part of the reason why we're disillusioned and disappointed as Christ followers. Because I think there's, there's a way in which we can hear God calling us to obey. We can see the activities of repentance. Like we know we need to repent of sin, but we also know our failures in sin. And so we think, how can I, how, you know, maybe Christianity doesn't work for me because it's so difficult to follow God. It's so difficult to obey at times for me as a sinner. And that's why, listen, the very first vision that we come into contact with here, that we were able to see is a vision of God's mercy. It all starts with God's mercy. And, and that, so Zechariah chapter one, verses seven through 17 teaches this. Very simple. But if there's like a bottom line thrust to it, God's mercy always, always, always precedes the activity of repentance. God's mercy precedes the activity of repentance that yeah, our repentance, there's activity to it. We have to obey God. But God's mercy always comes first. It's always that which is, makes it possible, right? So how, how does that happen? Well, we actually see God's mercy in four movements in this text. So this vision is given to Zechariah. The vision is given to us. It's given. It's explained. It is, for reasons we're going to see in a minute, lamented. Like there's something about it that shows that the world is not right. Okay, so vision is given. It's explained. It's lamented. And then God's people are comforted. So those are the four movements of the text. Let's start at the beginning. Um, the vision given. Verses 7 and 8. Read with me. On the 24th day of the 11th month, set your eyes there, which, which is the month of Shabbat in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo. For that context, go back and listen last week. Verse 8, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. And he was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. So the word of the Lord comes to Zechariah as something that he saw, right? The, oftentimes a prophet hears in terms of an oracle. It's like a thus saith the Lord speaking um, word. But here the word of the Lord comes as a vision. And again, this is the first of eight visions we're going to see. So because this is the very first and because there are eight that are coming, I think it's important for us to understand how these, how, how do we handle things like this when we come upon them in our Bibles? When we're at home and we're just doing Bible reading, what do we do when we come across 
visions like this in the Bible because I think we tend, like I said at the front end, I think we tend to avoid books like Zechariah in our own reading of the scriptures. It's not likely a place that we land if we're looking for a book to read and study. Uh, and I think uh, uh, it's, it's a shame because of how helpful it is, but I also think it's understandable because the reason we tend to avoid it is because we don't always know how, how, to, how to do stuff like, like how to read stuff like this. What do we do with this? Okay, so let me just say at the front end, just a few pastoral notes on this. Probably the most important thing to remember as you navigate books like Zechariah is to as much as possible let the text interpret for you and avoid the temptation that I think is always there to like be overly clever or to assign meaning to details that aren't in the text because it's, it's very much like a parable of Jesus. There are all these details. There are all these things that are happening. The horses are colored this way. There are these these specific kinds of plants. This is the location of the plant, right? And it's really temp- tempting to take these details or to take these images. Uh, visions in the Old Testament function almost like paintings. In fact, there are some professors who they have their students attempt to have a go at drawing the visions so that they can really get a sense of this, right? So, all right, like we're looking at this vision and there's all these details and there's this temptation to be really overly clever by allegorizing, assigning specific meanings to various things. And we just really need to be careful. I talked about this a lot in Revelation. I'm not going to belabor the point every week through Zechariah, but I think at the front end, um, I just want to say we get ourselves in real trouble in our reading of the Bible when we adopt what I call creative speculation in our interpretation. So the interpretation of creative speculation. This is where we creatively speculate. We don't have evidence a lot of times, but we're very speculative about what's happening in the Bible. Um, and, and you know, Bible teachers who come up with all these very clever and creative meanings for these various details, obscure details, are sometimes some of the most popular Bible teachers, and I get it. It's because they sound so clever and interesting. And my fear, though, is when we substitute the plain and primary meaning of the text with a secondary detail that was never intended to be focused on, it just it doesn't serve the people of God. All right, so um, we tend to tell ourselves, and I get it. Like, I think this is this shows us that our heart is really in a good place when we say that. We, we tell ourselves, oh, but that clever detail really made the Bible come alive for me. Like, it helped me understand it. We, we want to know the scriptures. We want to know God. And we hear this thing, and it's like, oh, that makes it come alive. But um, let me just speak some caution into you and say, as your pastor, probably that's not the case. In fact, oftentimes that creative speculation has the opposite effect. It separates you further from the main meaning of the text, which is really what will shepherd your hearts. And actually, when we get to the main meaning of Zechariah 1, 7 through 17, it gets so exciting. It's so exciting. It's thrilling, okay? So we don't need to play these games. So what do you do when you come across this vision in your Bible reading? We see this man riding on a red horse. Here's, here's our case study. He's, he's on a red horse within the myrtle trees behind on, on a glen or in the deep by a body of water. It depends on your translation. More riders on different color horses behind him, Right? And I'll get into what I think this means in a second, but our temptation is to, like I said, attribute a clever detail, a clever meaning to every detail. Ah, the color of the horse. It's a red horse. Red like blood, like a blood moon. You see what I'm saying, like downhill fast sometimes with these things. Myrtle trees, myrtles are evergreen, symbols of life for God's people, right? Like that's not a bad thing to speculate about. The the idea here is like the problem with this isn't that speculation can't be fun and interesting. It's that the Bible doesn't tell us. 
the meaning of these things. So let me propose to you the following solution on the matter for what these things mean, unless Zechariah tells us otherwise. Maybe the horses are colored that way because that's what color the horses are. Okay? Like maybe the horse is red because that's what color he is in the, in the vision, in the painting. Like there has to be a setting to the painting. And that's the color that was chosen for this horse. Maybe it's myrtle trees because uh, that's the kind of plant that grew. And it's at a glen because, or in a, by a body of water because that's where they tended to grow. Um, so what I'm saying is we, we just got to be real careful. We got to be real careful. I want you, and I say all of that because I want you to feel confident. Like when we find ourselves in, in texts like this, I want you to feel really confident that you can actually navigate this text, as you open your scripture, maybe you do need a good commentary to help you with the language because there are things that, that can be difficult in terms of like the, the translation, but you actually can read and understand this in the text itself. So we come to this word and this is where I think we see it, right? Behold, it's meant to get our attention on what really matters. The author wants to direct our attention to the detail that should hold our attention. So what does he want us to focus on? The rider on this red horse. And his horse is in the midst of myrtle trees, multiple riders behind him. And what we're looking at here is just the setting of this vision. So we shift now. That's the vision given to now the vision interpreted. Verses 9 through 11. Look with me first at verse 9. So 7 and 8, vision given. 9 through 11, vision interpreted. Verse 9. Then I, I said, what are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So it's good to get the the characters who are in this vision, right? We have Zechariah. And then another character here is the angel who talked with me. Several commentaries uh, refer to this angel, commentators, scholars, refer to this angel as the, the interpreting angel. Like this is a very specific character in these visions because we find him actually in seven of the eight visions and his function is always to tell Zechariah what these things mean. He interprets, which is really helpful for us who's, who are reading our Bibles. Like that's what, that's what we want to focus in on. So this interpreting angel replies, I will show you what they are. Zechariah asks, what are these? Good question. Uh, the, the interpreting angel says, I'll show you. Then the way he shows Zechariah is so interesting. Um, he has the characters in the vision interact and actually say what's going on, which is crazy. So, um, you know, the man between the myrtles, if we're reading the description carefully, uh, speaks here, you know, verse 10, verse 10. Um, so the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, these are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. The man who's standing between the myrtles, if we're reading carefully, is actually this rider on a red horse. In verse 8, that's how he's described exactly. He'll be described that way again by the end of the vision. So the vision itself starts to describe itself. It's like, imagine going to the Walker Art Museum, downtown Minneapolis, and you get a tour guide, and you come up on this, like, brilliant painting, and, the t and you said, you say, what are these, you know? And the tour guide says, I will show you what they are. And then the painting itself, like, the woman in the canoe and the guy out front, like, paddling, they look at you and they start talking. You know, that that's kind of what's happening here. There's an image, there's a vision playing out that's meant to be a picture of things. And now the picture starts talking to them, which is really amazing. So this lead rider begins to speak. And he says this, he says, these riders behind him, these are the ones whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. 
So this is where, as we alluded to earlier, J.R.R. Tolkien receives his inspiration for the Dunedain, these great riders from the West who patrolled Middle-earth. They were busy keeping it from evil with the lead rider of sorts being Aragorn himself in Lord of the Rings. What are they doing as they patrol? They're keeping watch. They represent in many ways God's sovereignty over the earth, that he's in control of everything, that he sees all, that he can respond to all. It extends to every part. And in particular, it seems here that earth refers to all the known world, like all of the nations surrounding the people of Israel. Okay? Uh, but now, you know, it's not just the lead writer who speaks to say what, what's happening in the text, but all the writers appear to answer in unison behind him in the vision. So verse 11, And they answered the angel of the Lord, who was standing among the myrtle trees, and said, We have patrolled the earth. So now they're all answering. We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Okay, this is where things admittedly do get pretty confusing. Because the writers are directing their words to the angel of the Lord. And so we might immediately think right? That he's talking to um, the interpreting angel. That's the angel that's there. But we need to pause here and realize that the term the angel of the Lord is a completely different figure throughout the Old Testament. He's unique and distinct, and that's never actually how the interpreting angel is talked about. We see the interpreting angel continually described as the angel who talked with me, the angel who spoke with me. But here we see the angel of the Lord, right? Um, Throughout the Old Testament, he's there, He appears only twice in Zechariah, here and a little bit later on. And look at how the angel of the Lord is described. Guys, I can prove it to you that it's not the angel. I'm not not giving you a creatively speculative detail. This is in the text. Standing among the myrtle trees. Look at verse 8 again with a description of the lead rider on the red horse. What's he doing? Standing among the myrtle trees. This is the exact same description. So I think the idea here is that the lead rider of this host of riders is actually... This figure, the angel of the Lord, which is really exciting. Uh, We're going to learn more about him as we go, but here we see the angel of the Lord, and these men now address him, the lead rider, as a report. He's kind of their general, and they're coming back from patrol, and they're reporting to, to their general what they have found. More to say on the identity of this rider in a little bit, but let's continue. So they they report to this guy who's in charge, the lead rider, and they say, we patrolled the earth. And behold, all the earth remains at rest, or literally the earth sits at peace and remains quiet. And again, this can get, this is like my first read through on this, you know, it's like, this is a head scratcher at first. Because listen, uh, this shows some of the reasons why we need to read our Bible carefully and, and sometimes repeatedly to understand something. Because that to me sounds like a really good report. Like you send these men off and they come back and they say, the earth sits at quiet. It remains, it remains at rest. Like, what more could you ask for than a restful world, right? Okay, There's, it sits at peace. But now we see, so the vision was given, the vision was explained, but now we see the vision is lamented because look at the response from the lead rider to that report. The angel of the Lord, the lead rider says, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these 70 years. It's like, whoa, hang on, time out. Being a little harsh, man, because the world sits at peace. That's pretty good. Um, but apparently it's not good. It's not good news that all the, the earth remains at rest or sits at peace, remains quiet. It's causing a lament to come forth, to pour forth from the angel of the Lord, from the rider of the red horse, okay? 
Why? Okay, well, okay. So this word remains, we find in the ESV, renders remains at rest, dwells at rest, inhabited by rest. We see it again in Zechariah later on. In chapter 7, the prophet writes this. He says, Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous or inhabited by prosperity with her cities around her and the south and the lowland were inhabited? The idea here is, here's a description of Jerusalem dwelling at rest, remaining at rest prior to exile. The rest, their rest is a relief from war, relief, relief from battle with the enemies of God when he was bringing them into their land, right? And it's good. It's good that they've experienced rest from that, but they've grown comfortable. They've grown complacent. They begin to forget the God who brought them out of the land. They rebel against him. He puts them in exile. So now they call out to God in exile with the expectation that the Lord will now, as they come out of exile, overthrow their enemies the same way he did the first time. That he'll upend them. That he'll throw the tables over. Like, now it's it's Israel's time again. So we'll almost have a reconquest of the land. Ah, but that does not appear to be happening. Instead... Persia's grip on this area of the world during this time seems tighter than ever. King Darius has won battles for his people that have really cemented the peace of Persia, right? The peace of the surrounding nations. So the reign of the enemies of God, the reign of those who have like denied the word of God, who've worked actively worked against the word of God, it's secure. It seems really secure. It's not challenged. It's at peace. And it brings about a lament from the lead writer, the angel of the Lord. And he reminds us in his lament, First of all, that the exile was a product of God's anger. So we talked about this last week. He says, against which you have been angry these 70 years. So that's referring to the exile, okay? But, but the question from the writer then appeals to God's mercy. So yes, you've been angry, but O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, right? You've been angry for righteous reasons, but how long will you withhold your mercy from your people? So this lead writer becomes something of a mediator between God and his people with this lament. He stands between them. On the one hand, he identifies with the anger of God. On the other hand, he identifies with the needed grace and mercy of the people of God. All right? And this lament, you know, again, it, it speaks to the disappointment of God's people during this time. and addresses the context that we talked about last week. And here it is, an expectation that God would overthrow those who wish them harm, but instead they're prospering, at rest, unchallenged, and therefore God's people are exposed, they're vulnerable, and they're, they feel like they're not fully out of exile. Do you remember that quote from last week, that the shadow of exile still hangs over them? They feel like they're not quite out yet. Right? They're, they're vulnerable from their perspective. And so the vision of Zechariah is, is given, it's explained, it's lamented, but we don't shut our Bibles there and say, well, I guess God, God's promises aren't true. Right? Like, this, is the, this is where the word of the Lord speaks. It's, it's exactly on this point of disappointment and disillusionment that God speaks because it's here that we see God's people comforted. So in the midst of this, you know, God doesn't rebuke them and say, guys, I would have been righteous and and." in the right to completely obliterate you. So what are you complaining about? He could have, but he didn't. He responds with comfort. He responds with grace. Look at, starting in verses 13 through 15. And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, cry out, thus says, so you see, the angel who talked with me, interpreting angel. See the difference, right? Okay. The angel who talked with me said to me, cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I'm exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion, and I'm exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. 
for while I was angry, but a little, they furthered the disaster. Right. So in the book of the, the, the prophet Isaiah happens also kind of like Zechariah. It's a major prophet, but it happens in parts. And we have this one part of the prophet Isaiah that's actually foretelling the coming exodus, the judgment against Israel. But then you get to chapter 40 and it's like right when Israel is, is probably starting to think about that kind of disappointment and despondency of like, man, there's coming judgment. We deserve this judgment. Does God just leave us in this or is there mercy? Chapter 40 begins with comfort, O oh, comfort my people. And that's the same structure we see here, much like the last part of Isaiah. The prophet offers hope to God's people that despite their sin and wickedness, he's coming to save them. That's what Isaiah says. He's coming to save you. There's a prince of peace. He's coming to save you. He's light in the midst of darkness. He's coming to save you. And now we see the same thing in Zechariah. God's people in the midst of their disappointment are encouraged. Don't lose heart. God has not forgotten. The Lord remembers. That's what Zechariah means. The name Zechariah, the Lord remembers. He will come to save you. He will come to save you. Okay, so like Isaiah, Zechariah is told to cry out, proclaim the good news in the midst of the disappointment. He then, like Isaiah before him, reminds Israel of the covenant. That's where Isaiah starts. That's where Zechariah starts. God is exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. But why would God be jealous? Well, it's not a negative connotation of one who has unhealthy affection. That's sometimes how we talk about jealousy. Like it's a negative emotion of one who has unhealthy affection, and it can be. But in this case, it's a healthy affection. It's an appropriate response. It's actually a strong affection for one who's entered into a covenant with someone else. There's a covenant here, so of course there's right jealousy here. And so it's it's a display of God's strong affection and emotion for his people on the one hand. But now on the other side of things, there's another emotion. God says he's very angry with the surrounding nations who've stood opposed to him, who've desired and worked toward the harm of his people, who've stood opposed to his word, and now they're at ease, the text says. They're at ease. They're at rest. Do we think about, think about that language again for a minute, all right? His anger was on the fathers of Israel who were at ease. They were at rest. They'd become comfortable. And, now, and his anger came and upended their ease, brought them into exile. Now that exile is complete, his anger is shifted to the enemies of God who are now living quite at ease, comfortable in the world unchallenged, resting in their own like kingdom and strength, thinking I can say whatever I want and get patted on the back kind of a deal, right, um, in surrounding culture. So when Israel is at, a, at ease and at rest, they grew forgetful and simple, complacent. God upended them. Now those who oppose God find themselves at rest in their own cultural standing. Nobody in the world opposes them. God will upend them as well. There's judgment for both. It reminds me of this moment in Romans, Romans 3 where Paul says, look, whether you're Jew or Gentile, Nobody has an excuse here to avoid God's judgment. We're all guilty. Like we're all in the same playing field. We're all in need of God's mercy. And therefore, uh, judgment comes, right? But, but there is a rest to come that will not be upended. There is an ease that is to come that will not be upended. Where our burdens will be lifted, right? Verse 16, therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. And the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts. My cities shall again overflow with prosperity. And the Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. Zion, Jerusalem being used interchangeably to talk about God's people. Those who follow God. Okay. The people of God. So... 
God will bring his rest into the world. It's an intense statement of future hope. We're going to talk about why that's important as it relates to our disappointment and disillusionment in the weeks ahead. But listen, how will he do this is the question here. How will God bring his rest, a rest that won't be upended, can't be upended? He will come to save his people. That's what he says. He will come to save his people. He will return to Jerusalem with mercy. His house shall be built in it. That is a reference to the building of the temple during this time, but there's more to it than that. It's another temple that is to come. So he brings rest by coming to his people with mercy, dwelling with them. And when he comes, his cities will overthrow with tr- overflow with true rest, the comfort of God, with prosperity. That's precisely what God would do in Jesus Christ. He would come for his people in mercy, establish his dwelling place with them in him. Despite the fact that in their pursuit of rest, they rejected God by becoming forgetful and complacent, thinking that they could remain in God's place by their own effort. Despite the world's pursuit of rest, which acquiesces to all kinds of sin, abandons the gospel in order to have comfort in culture. And though all of this makes us all deserving of God's wrath, God comes to grant us true rest by taking that sin upon himself at the cross. Not by like smiting us in judgment and wrath, though we deserve it, but by willingly going to the cross, making peace between God and man for those who's, who, who rest in his, in his work, right? Rather than these other things. Who rest in him. Raising up from the dead so that we would have a living hope. We would have God's dwelling place with us in Jesus. Jesus himself, the temple, dwelling in our hearts through faith. This is the one whom the entire book will point to. I said it last week, but there is a reason that Zechariah is repeated so often in the Gospels, that he's the most quoted prophet, because at the center of his visions is this promised one who is to come, right? And I would argue alongside of Token, who really did seem to understand this, that we get a glimpse of him here in this chapter. This figure, the lead rider, the one who seems to command the host of riders who patrol the earth is identified as the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord throughout the Old Testament appears to be described not as an angel, but as God himself, not as a created being, but as God himself. And not only as God himself, but it seems perhaps as an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ, the son. You know, the angel of the Lord in Exodus 3 is said to be in the burning bush. If you don't think that the angel of the Lord in Exodus 3 is, is God himself, who do you think's in the bush? Michael? Gabriel? No, the, the angel of the Lord's in the burning bush, and he identifies himself by the name of Yahweh. This is not a creative being. So, the angel of the Lord is identified throughout the Old Testament as the Son of Man. It really does seem that he functions to give us as a glimpse of the Son and to strengthen that case. When Jesus does come, he identifies himself in the strongest possible terms with the words of Exodus 3. He says, I am him. I am Yahweh. That's who I am. He's doing it on purpose. And here in Zechariah 1, this this rider, he's a mediator between God and man, one who looks and sees God's anger against human sin on the one hand must be dealt with, but who also mediates for God's mercy to apply it. And what that might mean here, in other words, what we may have here in our text this morning is the son standing before the father and declaring his desire for the mercy of God to be made known to us despite our sin knowing full well that God's mercy would require, what God's mercy would require is his own death for his people. 
Knowing full well where that leads. Knowing full well that where this mercy would lead him would be to the cross. By his suffering we have rest. By his death we have life. And this is seen in the imagery of baptism that we'll get the blessing and opportunity to participate in this morning. We who believe in Jesus are actually buried with Christ in his death and we're raised with him in newness of life. That's what it means to believe in the gospel. That's what happens when we rest in the promises of Christ. That's what happens when we throw ourselves on his mercies. We, we're buried with Christ in his death. We're actually given new, newness of life. We're raised to new life. And so when we come to, to be baptized, we're publicly proclaiming to everyone around us that that is the condition of our hearts. That that's actually what happened in us. It's an outward symbol of an inward reality. It's the gospel on display in like this dramatic form that allows us to understand in a new way that we've been buried with Christ in his death. Our old self is gone. The activity of repentance right in our hearts has brought about a new life. But why? Why do we live a new life now? By God's mercy and grace. His mercy precedes the activity of repentance. And so uh, we proclaim the reality of what, of what God has done in us. And we're going to see that happen this morning. If you're here today, you're a believer in Jesus, and you've never been baptized, you know? And maybe throughout your life, you've had this kind of nagging sense of like, I should be baptized. Like, I, I sh- I, I'm not necessarily sure even what it means maybe, but I should follow the Lord's command in that. But for various reasons, it hasn't happened. That's okay. We want to meet you in that place and invite you to be baptized today. Invite you to come and at least talk to me about it. Like, I'd love to have a conversation if you're unsure about it. At baptism, I typically ask a form of these three questions, you know, to those who are being baptized. And so for you to hear it here, I typically ask, do you, first of all, do you affirm the grace of God in Jesus to save you from your sin? Do you, do you believe that this is true? To save you from your sin by standing in your place at the cross that he took your punishment in that way. Number two, do you affirm by your identification with Christ that through faith you died to sin, you were raised to newness of life in him? And therefore, number three, do you renounce ungodliness and worldly passions? This is how Paul in the book of Titus talks. The gospel, yes, it it creates newness of life, but it causes us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, desiring instead to live a different kind of life because your trust is in Jesus and the new life he's given you, right? So, um, th- these are what we ask. If, if that's you and you're like, yes, I affirm all of that and I want to publicly confess this to others. Talk to me this morning. But we're excited to see this, this gospel put on display in our midst this morning. And let's pray that we'd hear it and be encouraged. So Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful that you communicate the gospel to us by your word, by your spirit, but that you also left us with these, these ordinances by which we actually see your gospel, the Lord's table, baptism, that are meant to be these living parables of the gospel. So allow us to see and be encouraged by this this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.